This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Julia Fierro, author of the novel Cutting Teeth. Fierro is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and is the founder of the Sackett Street Writers' Workshop. Her novel Cutting Teeth chronicles a weekend getaway with a group of 30-somethings and their children. Told in several points of view, the novel captures the complex dilemmas of early parenthood. We began the discussion talking about Fierro's journey to bring Cutting Teeth to publication. After leaving Iowa, she taught and spent a decade working on her writing before publishing. Those 10 years before publication are something she thinks a lot about. I think every writer has a different success story. And often the kind of success stories we hear, especially among literary writers, is kind of like the overnight success. Because people are insecure, right? Me included, and we don't want to share stories in which we didn't publish for 10 years after we graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop, like in my case. I feel like what I've learned now in retrospect, which is a wonderful place to be looking back on difficult years of not writing, is that I needed to go through this phase of not writing consistently because I'm the kind of writer that had to grow up as a person before I could write a book that I feel was ready to be published. I don't know, the same way that you write to inform yourself of the story that you're trying to tell, I needed that time in life to grow up and inform myself of who I am. What is it about Cutting Teeth, which for our audience is, it's really about parenthood and a group of 30-somethings who are in a playgroup together, but they really only spend, what, like two hours a week together, and then they go away for a weekend. So they really see each other for a deep light. You know, what was it about that notion that stuck um, that was the one that you brought to the finish line? Often when when a student, right, asks me for advice about, you know, I want to write a novel, or I'm writing this novel, but I'm not sure if it's the right topic. You know, I do think that, you know, obviously writers write because we have to. <laughs> it's not, it's not easy. <laughs> it's a lot of work, a lot of time spent away from, you know, from, you know, from other humans. Um, except for the imaginary ones. So I really feel like, you know, a writer, a writer who writes often, you know, or who is working on novels, which are just so time consuming, you know, we're doing it because we need to, you know, for me, it's because I have to filter my sort of obsessive, constant observational, you know, experience. I'm always observing, always interpreting like, sort of in a a bit of an obsessive way. And also writing is the way that I make sense of myself, what I think, how I feel about things. I think for all of us, whether you call yourself a writer or not, writing is how we understand ourselves, whether it's a blog post or even through text with a friend or emails or journaling, um, it's just the natural way of processing how we feel about ourselves and the world and our place in the world. And so I'm always going to write about 
the topics that I won't ever understand. I mean, I'm always going to write about obsessive fear and sort of that divide between, you know, being yourself in the world and having people understand you. You know, that's like one of my biggest issues is, am I expressing myself in a way, you know, that's clear to other people? Are they getting me? Do they understand me? So, you know, I I understand now that for the rest of my life, I'm going to be writing about the same things, the same issues, um, like fear and, you know, relationships and the American dream is something that I'm really interested in because my father immigrated from Italy sort of late in his life, in, in his late 30s, early 40s to America. And, you know, I think that at that time when I started writing Cutting Teeth, I was coming out of that phase of having small children, you know, sort of like an awakening, like, you know, coming out of that just sort of really intense period of having small children when you're just Time goes by so incredibly fast and slow at the same time because, you know, you're constantly busy. You're constantly chasing them, making sure they're safe. They don't fall down the stairs or, you know, there's a lot of sort of tedious aspects of those early years of parenting, like stuck in an apartment in the city all winter long with with toddlers. And so I wrote that first chapter to Cutting Teeth in which... um, you know, cutting teeth is told through seven different perspectives, which is a lot. And um, the first chapter is told through the character, Nicole. And I wrote that first chapter in which she has a panic attack at a Brooklyn playground. It, it was, that was very therapeutic. It was, it was a way for me to sort of make sense of the fears that I had as a parent to young children. But also, you know, I'm always going to be writing about you know, in some way, obsessive fears, because it's something that I've dealt with. I have had, you know, been obsessive compulsive since I was a small child. And so it's always going to be something that is featured in my work because I'm trying to make sense of it. Um, And so, you know, I wanted to write about a group of people who were all experiencing the same event, you know, this group of, 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 People, you know, this group of 30-something couples that go away for one weekend together, and they're in this, you know, sort of put them in this, like, small beach house and have them observe the same events, but interpret them in completely different ways and 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 show how that how each of their unique interpretations reveal each character's unique fears and desires and sort of the secrets and struggles that they're dealing with at that time in their life. And so that's what I'm really, I'm really interested in that and sort of creating that layered meaning by showing multiple perspectives. And I guess, you know, it also has something to do with the sort of existential, you know, crisis that we all experience which is that, you know, we really, you know, it sounds a little depressing, but how we're all really alone, you know, we can't know what other people are truly thinking or feeling. And so I love writing in that alternating third-person point of view because you can show how characters, you know, really there's this huge schism between the way in which we're all interpreting the same exact events. 
You're listening to First Draft, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Julia Fierro, author of the novel Cutting Teeth. So with all these parents that are at this house on Long Island, as you read from all their perspectives, and they're they're in the midst of probably some of the, I don't know, maybe if you would say it the hardest, because I'm sure it's hard every year when you have kids, but their kids are... No, yeah, I would say that's the hardest. <laughs> their kids are... <laughs> the first couple of years, yeah. Their kids are all toddlers, and they all seem just kind of wrecked by parenthood and not very happy. <laughs> like, why do you think that none of these people are truly happy, or is this a wrong interpretation? I mean, a lot of people ask me, readers are like, is this satire? And at the time... Now I can see how, you know, I didn't intend for it to be satirical, but I did intend, you know, I did, I think it's such, I think those first years of parenting, especially the first year, um, the first two years of, you know, your first child's life, right? A lot of these parents only have one child and, you know, and, or they're, or they, they're pregnant with their second or they're not having a second. And I think that that first, parenting experience is so incredibly just intense (laughs) and and I did want to create this sort of hyper real sense that that often feels absurd like having an incredibly you know intense reaction about your child eating something that you know isn't like you know having strawberries for the first time or you know hurting themselves where, like, you know, my parents and maybe your parents and this generation of parents that came before my generation, right, they were not, you know, it was a completely different experience. But for the, for for contemporary parents now, like, let's say your child eats a strawberry for the first time, right, and they get, like, a little rash on their cheeks. You're going to, like, whip out your phone and Google, like, allergic reaction strawberries and then, like, you know, read, like, eight posts about how they can go into anaphylactic (laughs) shock. And um, I just feel like we're parenting a very different age. You know, this over, this just sort of, you know, overconsumption of information and there's, like, a million different books on how to raise your child and they're very extreme you know it's like they range from like attachment parenting which is like wear your baby on your body 24 hours a day to like cry it out you know method which is like leave your baby in in its crib and let the baby cry itself to sleep even if it like you know throws up and (laughs) like gets so hysterical that it's like hyperventilating I think it's a very confusing time to be a parent, even though there are so many different choices, you know, and I think also that I guess the kind of parent or, you know, definitely the class of parent that is featured in this book, I think for most of the parents, they did grow up privileged, you know, and and ambitious. And I think that that ambition kind of can often find its way into the parenting. So these parents are just so desperate to be good parents, but what's really happening is it's sort of backfiring. Most of those couples are not very nice to one another. 
I think I think it's an intense time too for couples, you know, because who you are as a couple changes dramatically as soon as that other member of your family shows up. And I think it's really hard to know. Actually, I think it's impossible to know how things are going to change or how you're going to change or how your relationship with your partner is going to change before that baby shows up. And I think that, you know, particularly for ambitious couples, you know, who have, you know, desires or motivations or ambitions outside of not just parenting, but even like their jobs, like a lot of those, the couples in the book are writers or artists or, you know, musicians, or they have ambitions that they've put on hold. And, um, and I do think that, you know, I wanted to show, I think what happens when, or what I've seen happen, you know, with readers' responses, and even with my own response reading the book, is that, you know, these couples really should be happy. They have enough, you know, maybe not enough money to get by in New York City in a comfortable way, but at least they're pretending like they have enough. Um, and, you know, they have these children, they have beautiful children, they have, you know, this, what what looks like a really great life on the outside, and yet they're not happy. And I think that that, you know, I think that's what makes Cutting Teeth a great book club book <laughs> because, you know, I visited some book clubs and wow, like discussions about this are really intense. Um, you know, they're just some readers and I completely understand this, just really can't, you know, they really can't accept the fact that these these people aren't happy. You know, they're kind of like, well, they should be happy. They have everything. They should be happy. Um, And I think for me that goes back, you know, somewhat to sort of my obsession with the American dream. Um, Like this unattainable kind of like Gatsby's green light, you know, Um, like this unattainable sort of height of accomplishment or wealth or the perfect life that isn't really attainable. You know, I think I think I think as Americans and maybe even as especially as New Yorkers, like, you know, being content isn't really like something that we're known for. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. So when you when you wrote this you have these seven points of view and one of them, Tenzin, is uh, she's a nanny that some of these mothers sometimes share. But she is Tibetan and her three children and her husband are back in Tibet. And so yeah. I'm wondering if you sort of used her purposefully as sort of an outsider perspective in the novel. Thank goodness for Tenzin. <laughs> you know, I started out writing a short section from her point of view. You know, I was feeling a little insecure about it. I was like, what do I know about being a, you know, Tibetan woman whose children are across the world and, you know, she's away from her family and has moved to New York to seek, you know, political asylum and get her family to New York City and is, you know, hasn't seen them in years. But I just, I just felt so 
comfortable, you know, getting to know her and writing from her perspective. And, you know, I, for me, writing is a, an escape, you know, it's, it's time away from my own obsessive worryish brain, you know, and, and, a, and a chance to slip into someone else's mind. And it's just so incredibly, it can be very comforting and, and, and maybe even like it's the moment in life where a writer feels the least alone is when they're in the mind of an imaginary character. It sounds pretty delusional, but it worked. I just admire her so much and, and I, and the book really needed pers- like a perspective, a grounding perspective. It's not like I think Tenzin is a better person than the other characters because I think it's, it's all relative and, They've lost, a lot of the characters have lost perspective at this period in their life. But she was an incredible, you know, help, especially in some of the dramatic scenes. Like, there's the climactic scene towards the end of the book. There's, like, on the last night that all the couples are at this house, there's sort of, like, this blow-up argument, like a group argument, and... I realized that she was really the character, Tenzin was the character that I had to show that, filter that scene through. By employing like a little bit of dramatic irony while still being respectful to her because she's a very aware, smart character, I I hoped that it would sort of bring the melodrama down a little bit. You know, she's she was aware of like the drama and the pain that everyone's experiencing, but also sort of not as aware as the reader is because the reader is more like these unhappy <laughs> couples, I imagine. I just really feel very grateful to her as a character. You're listening to First Draft, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Julia Fierro, author of the novel Cutting Teeth. Tell me about some writer, a writer that influenced you. Can you read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Sure. So, oh, this is so hard for me. I've been thinking about it for like days because I feel like for me, it's really about the whole book. You know, like when I read a book, a novel that I really love, you know, it's hard sometimes, I guess, to pick out a specific passage because it's really like the the accumulation of all the, the sentences, like the ultimate meaning of the book. But there's a book that I've thought about a lot, and and it's a book that I, it's That Night by Alice McDermott. The beginning of That Night, the first chapter, I've taught a lot and examined and read and reread. And That Night is, is really, is a huge influence and, and, and inspiration for my next novel, The Gypsy Mouth Summer. That night when he came to claim her, he stood on the short lawn before her house, his knees bent, his fists driven into his thighs, and bellowed her name with such passion that even the friends who surrounded him would come to support him to drag her from the house, to murder her family if they had to, let the chains they carried go limp in their hands. Even the men from our neighborhood in Bermuda shorts or chinos, white t-shirts and gray suit pants, with baseball bats and snow shovels held before them like rifles. Even they paused in their rush to protect her, the good and the bad, 
the black-jacketed boys and the fathers in their light summer clothes, startled for that one moment before the fighting began by the terrible, piercing sound of his call. This is serious, my own father remembered thinking at that moment. This is insane. I remember only that my 10-year-old heart was stopped by the beauty of it all. So I think that's just an incredible, that's an incredible way to start a novel. I mean, the urgency and the, you know, just there's just such an instant sense of promise created and urgency and momentum that I, you know, I really admire that. And I think it's really important. And I use that chapter in a lot of my novel writing workshops to talk about the way in which a sense of promise is so important that you're kind of creating this contract with the reader, like, okay, you know, here's a book with hundreds of pages in it. I promise you that something big is going to take place, whether, you know, it doesn't have to be something big in terms of plot or storyline, but you'll feel something, you know. Um, So I really admire that. Can you read a short passage from something you wrote? I'll I'll read from a Tenzin section. Tenzin's the Tibetan nanny in cutting teeth. So here, this is this is Tenzin watching the first night at the beach house, watching the couples, um, which she calls the mommies and daddies. Um, now, as the candlelight stretched their shadows up the walls, Tenzin watched Tiffany as she sashayed from one group to the next, like a princess in one of the Disney movies, greeting guests at her great big party. It was as if all the mommies and daddies were dancing in celebration of the children's absence. The children are asleep. Tenzin understood the adult mind needed a rest from the busyness of children. She had three of her own. And as the Dalai Lama himself says, love is the absence of judgment. The mommies and daddies' voices reminded Tenzin of glass bells ringing loudest when someone made a joke. Startled, they froze, peering up the stairs on pins and needles. Then the dance resumed. The rhythm of the mommy's chit-chat was the music of Tenzin's American life. This was the first thing she had learned. The Americans, especially the wealthy, educated ones, it pleased them to talk about the things they loved and the things they did not love, the people they knew and the people they dreamed of knowing. They very much liked to talk about what they imagined the people they knew and even those they did not know were thinking and feeling, as if they could read the mind as the ancient Tibetan shamans had read dreams to reveal past lives. Tenzin saw how the mommies and daddies delighted in the stories they told, especially the stories about before. Before Chase, before Hank, before Wyatt, before Levi and Dash and Harper. That was really fun to write. And it was also a nice break. I mean, when you're a writer, you know, writing from very close within the character's perspective, sometimes it can feel claustrophobic. And that was kind of an effect I was going for. You know, all these characters trapped in this beach house for a couple of days and the reader trapped in there with them. So it was nice to have her perspective that was a break for me also to sort of step back and look at these couples with a little bit of distance. Where do you write? I write in this magical place called the writer space, the Brooklyn writer space. It's not far from my house and it's this storefront 
on Court Street in Brooklyn where that's just filled with cubicles and there's like a white noise machine and everyone goes in their little cubicle, which is nice because there's, you know, these tall walls, so you, have, you know, you can hide behind them. And it's really quiet and you just hear like the click, click, clicking of everyone's keys. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, when when you sent me these questions, this one, I was like, wow, I really do spend all my time around writing. Um, because when I'm not writing, I'm talking to Sacka Street instructors, or I'm meeting with students, or I'm going to students' launch parties, or I'm going to readings or literary events, or running panels, moderating panels about writing or and publishing, and you know, so really, like my life, which I feel incredibly lucky to have, this, is is just filled with writing. You know, and I I love talking about the craft of writing as much as I love writing. You know, I just it's like something I understand. The only time that I'm not writing or thinking about writing or talking about writing is when I'm knitting. I am a somewhat compulsive knitter, and actually, it was something that my mom taught me. After my first book didn't sell in 2002, 2003, I was so depressed. And my mom was like, oh, maybe I can teach you how to knit. And I was like, why didn't you teach me this when I was a child? (laughs) Because it really would have been such a great help, you know, for an obsessive, compulsive child and teenager to have something to do with their hands. Um, But I uh, started knitting, and it's become this, like, incredibly important part of my life and but I can't just knit I also have to listen to audiobooks like I need this like complete distraction so I was I've listened to hundreds of audiobooks while I knit who do you show your work to first to get feedback it's somewhat hypocritical as a right as a you know director of a writer's workshop but I don't show my work to that many people So what I'll do is if I write something, like when I wrote the first chapter of The Gypsy Mall Summer, which is an omniscient point of view, it's about this island, this fictional island called Avalon Island, and it's set in the summer of 1992. I had never, you know, written an omniscient point of view before, and I was nervous about it. So sometimes, like, I'll give my husband the pages or ask him if I can read them to him. And he's a writer, too. Um, his name is Justin Feinstein, and he writes mostly nonfiction, but also um, works in advertising and writes a lot of scripts for commercials. And often I'll be like, can you just listen to this or can you read this and, and just tell me it's okay for me to keep writing? And not surprisingly, he always says it's okay. <laughs> and then when I want critical feedback, I have... My best friend is a writer, and her name is Chaley Wilson-Widger, and she actually published a wonderful novel last year called Real Happy Family. So she really is a huge help, and I, I overwrite often. Like, my first drafts are, like, really long because I just write, write, write really fast to inform myself of what it is that I'm trying to tell. And she's been a really great help in, like, cutting that last, like, 10, 20,000 words that I just can't see. And how have you dealt with rejection? I don't think rejection ever stops hurting. 
you know, I think that would be a problem if you just, you know, you, you weren't affected at all by it. But it is interesting, like, in our internet age, right, as a published writer, you're reviewed, if you're lucky, right, so much, um, whether it's, like, you know, by book blogs or um, the New York Times or the New Yorker is really lucky to get a great review in the New Yorker. I'm still shocked by that and very grateful. And um, But you're also reviewed, like, you know, a thousand times by consumer, you know, consumer reviews, like on Goodreads and Amazon. And, um, you know, after your, you know, 80th review on Amazon, which I try not to read the Amazon and Goodreads reviews because I just don't think there's much that's helpful about them. (laughs) You know, um, I mean, they're really smart readers. I just, don't know if I'm strong enough to read all 1,000 of my Goodreads reviews, but it does sort of, you know, make it easier because there's just such a quantity, you know, of, of you're just being reviewed all the time. And I think that's hard at first, like not knowing when you're going to get like some Google alert that your publicist sends you that has like a really nasty review by a book blogger who just hated your book. There's also really wonderful surprises where, like, a book blogger who isn't maybe in the demographic that you thought would like your book, like, you know, some 23-year-old guy who lives in Iowa, you know, wrote a blog post about how he loved your book about Brooklyn parents. <laughs> You're like, wow, that's amazing, you know. So it does get easier. I think I think almost actually everything gets easier with age. I really like being older, (laughs) but I really, really appreciate the perspective that has come, you know, with, with life experience. And what is your favorite word? Oh yeah. I thought about this one a lot. So my favorite word is thought because I'm thinking of it more in terms of like he thought, she thought, because for me, point of view is everything. And without those point of view reminders, like she thought, he thought, she wondered, he hoped, there's no bridge to get close to your character's thoughts and feelings. And, you know, for me, the most important and most enjoyable part of writing and reading is getting as close to my character's thoughts and feelings as possible. And it's, it's that it's those little words like thought that enable me to get close to their consciousness. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Julia Fierro, author of the novel Cutting Teeth. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.